Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we thank you that we can come to you in time of prayer. Listening to the choir and watching Deanna Burris sit up there and sing, and Deanna was told this week she has ovarian cancer again. And yet she's singing to you and rejoicing. And Father, others sitting in this room, despite the circumstances of life, can say, no, Lord, I, I rejoice because I know I can take it to you in prayer and you hear. Father, as we go to the text today, we just ask that you would guide. Thank you for your word. We thank you that it doesn't come back void. Lord, these ancient words are tried and true because they are the very words that you have spoken for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to Second Peter. If it's your first Sunday joining us, we've been journeying through this little letter nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. If you get to 1 Peter, you're close. It's the second book. 2 Peter is the book that we're in, and we're at chapter 3. As you, were turn, as you turn there and looking at Peter's words, it reminded me of a story. Years ago, I had parked at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. I remembered it. it was 3B. That was the parking spot. Returned from the trip, and I thought for sure someone had stolen my car. I don't know why, it was, there was no money attached to the rear view mirror. Uh, it was a jalopy. I mean, why would anyone take my car? I looked for it over an hour and started to panic and I finally found security. They got me into the Batmobile and the first thing he asked is, well, where did you park? I said, well, 3B. And he goes, yeah, which terminal? I said, oh, really? There's more than one. I had forgotten which terminal I was in. So after some time, we found that car. It was still sitting there. You know, the average person forgets up to 70 to 80% of what they've learned in one day. By the end of the day, they'll forget. And I know some parents are saying, yep, that's true with my teens. <laughs> and they say that the average person by the end of the month will forget 95% of what they've learned. It's amazing. Peter knows that. That's why he's writing this letter. He said it earlier in the letter. He says it here now. He says, Dear friends, this is already the second letter I've written you in which I'm trying to stir up your pure mind by way of reminder. Now, we've been looking at the false teachers that have encroached upon the ministry there with these churches. Peter's warned them of this. And now he comes and he says, I I've talked about their character. Now I want to deal with their content. I, says, I want you to remember what I've stated to you versus what they're stating. Notice what he says. I want you to recall both the predictions foretold by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, understand this. In the last days, blatant scoffers will come, being propelled by their own evil urges and saying, where is his promised return? And that question, by the way, it's laced. It's very clear. It's one of mockery. <laughs> He's not coming. All, all these things you've talked about, the prophets talked about. For since our ancestors died, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, they, the false teachers, suppressed this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and on the earth was formed out of water and by means of water through these things. The world existing at that time was destroyed when a deluge with water. That's the flood. He referred to that earlier in chapter 2. 
For by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire by being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If you're following along in the notes that you received this morning, this first section is a call to remember. Again, he starts with dear friends. It's, it's an interesting phrase. He used it only twice in 1 Peter. He uses it five times in 2 Peter. It's an affectionate term, and it should make sense that he would use it more in 2 Peter. He knows that his death is imminent. We know that Peter is imprisoned and will be executed because he follows Jesus under the emperor Nero. And, and so he knows his days are numbered. He's concerned. There's tenderness and concern as he writes. He says, my dear friends, I've already written you a, 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 another letter, which is First Peter, and now I'm writing to you on this. And again, why? He says, because I want you to recall. I want you to remember what I have shared with you. I used to have a professor in college. He would often say, now remember. Remember this. Uh, remember. We used to keep a list of every time he said Remember. But it tells you three things. Number one, you better sit up and take nourishment. When he said, remember, we knew that it was important. Secondly, it's important because it was going to appear on a quiz or a test. We knew that. And third, if you didn't remember, there were serious consequences. <laughs> so remember is what is being highlighted here. The term remember is seen throughout the Old and New Testament. It's vital because it's a catalyst for gratitude, for worship, obedience, for trust, and for hope. Let me give you a text. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this so that you can be brave. Think about it, you rebels. Remember what I accomplished in antiquity. Truly, I am God. I have no peer. I am God, and there is no one like me. So here in Isaiah, the Lord is saying, set up. Remember who I am. Don't forget it. You rebels, you, you troublemakers. John 14. Remember Jesus in the upper room? What did he say? I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's role? To help you to remember the things that I have shared. We take communion. What is communion? What is the bread and the cup? They are to remember, to help us to recall the things that the Lord has done. And in Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus ascended, he said, Remember, I am with you always. The term is to recall, to bring into that which has been instructed. In other words, we see that it's historical, it's personal, and it's verbal. It's not some mysticism here. No, no, no. Throughout Scripture, the call to remember is to set up, take heed, obey. One scholar writes, the memory motif is one of the primary emphasis in the entire Bible. In Scripture, memory is rarely simply a psychological recall. If one remembers in the Bible, the biblical sense, the past is brought into the present with compelling power. Action in the present is conditioned by what is remembered. This isn't, did you forget your keys or to put the meat out to defrost? No, no, no. This is indicating there is action that is going to be brought forth here. And we see that because... He says, what you're to recall, verse 2, notice this, is the predictions foretold, don't miss this, holy prophets. What a contrast to the false teachers. <laughs> no, 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 no. These are the, the true prophets, and holiness there, of course, speaks of their dignity, of their inspiration. 
that they have a divine authorized message. Again, contrast to those that are the followers of Balaam, which we looked at last week. And he said, these holy prophets, and I love the next thing he says, and the commandment, it's singular. Well, Jesus gave a lot of commandments, and then those are echoed in the apostles. But he uses singular, why? Because it, it's seen as collective. It's, it's all binding us for us as followers of Jesus. And so Peter says to the, those churches here in Second Peter, says, remember, remember what the prophets talked about and what Jesus taught and how that has been relayed to you via the apostles. Why? Because the false teachers are coming along and giving us a whole different message. And Peter is very concerned about the church. You know, it's easy, isn't it, for us to grow complacent in our knowledge. I think that's why Christ told the church at Ephesus, remember where I have brought you. Go back to the fundamentals. <laughs> Don't lose those. That which is novel or new, careful. We want to go back to what has been presented to us. And it's a remembrance of these things. And thus, he says, notice here in the text in verse 3, they should understand that they're scoffers to the things that are going to occur. This, is, this isn't something new. The prophets, all the way back to Enoch, according to Jude, they were warned about God's judgment that is yet to come. I think of Amos, an Old Testament prophet, who said, Woe to those who wish for the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Why do you want it? He says, I will bring it. It'll be darkness, not light. Disaster that's inescapable. And I love this next. He says, a man, it's as if a man ran from a lion only to meet a bear. He escapes the bear into the house, leans against the wall, and is bitten by a poisonous snake. That's a bad day. And he's saying, that's coming. Amos is saying, you need to take heed. Don't you realize the day of judgment is not good? And these false teachers are saying, oh, this isn't going to happen. Remember, they're trying to take Christianity, compartmentalize, strip it of that which they feel is embarrassing to the culture they live in today. And Peter's saying in the midst of this, no, 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 you have to remember. You cannot forget. How do we remember the things of Scripture? I wrote down a few, I think, reading and rereading, incorporating a variety of ways to learn, whether it's listening to a podcast, uh, reading through the Bible for a year, taking notes, slowing down and being intentional on what we do, a journal. It's memorizing. It's another way to, to remember the things that we've been taught. Applying them, that's key, is it not? <laughs> It's not, Bible study should never end with just observation and interpretation. It should end with application. Another great, great way to remember is to teach. Teach others. I think that's why, one of the reasons the Lord said to his followers, you are to go make disciples, teaching them to observe all things. It's putting into practice, and, and that helps sink in the truths that we learned. Slow down, as I mentioned, make it a habit. Those are just some ways but I think we can help in recalling the things of the Lord. Well, Peter's not done. After he's caught, recalled these things, recalled for us to remember these things, he then goes into verse 3, and he gives us several things concerning 
these false teachers. He says, above all, understand this. That phrase has occurred before, 2 Peter 1, indicating this, this is very important. Sit up, listen to what I'm about to say, he says, as he goes into the content of what they're teaching. And he lays out their rhetoric. Now, there's several, if you're taking notes, several characteristics of the rhetoric I want you to see. First of all, the rhetoric of the false teachers really is only validating prophecy. Now, what do I mean by that? What do the prophets say? There will be scoffers that come. They will deny these things in the future. And that's exactly what you see happening here. Notice what the text says. Look at verse 3. Understand, these blatant scoffers will come. It's fulfilling what was stated. Paul, when he met with the elders of Ephesus at Acts 20, he says to them, I know that after I'm gone, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And Peter's saying, yep, that's right, Paul. <laughs> I'm already seeing it. Even from among your own group. Wow, did you catch that? He said, they're, they're among you. Will arise teaching perversion of the truth to draw the disciples away. The scoffers only validate what was prophesied in Scripture. So that's the first thing we see. And there's a real danger, isn't there? A danger that they're, they wear this beautiful cloak of humility and love while parading as individuals who are enlightened. Sound familiar? Take heed. Be careful. Second thing we see here is in verse 3. He says, after he mentions their scoffers, they will be propelled by their own evil urges. Their teaching is not based out of ignorance. They've not been misled or sat at the wrong feet of the wrong teacher or cultural shortcomings. No, 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 no. Their theology is a moral issue. It's one that's driven by their own desires, their own sinful behavior. If you take God out of the equation, your ethics ultimately uh, is you. <laughs> if, there's no, if there's no basis for what is true, then you become the determining factor, and that's called egoism. That's not called a biblical worldview because it's not based on Scripture. And that's the problem with the false teachers. And as we've talked about before, then one's theology becomes just what your morals are. It accommodates the way you seek to live. It then goes on, and he says, and saying, where is this promised return that the ancestors talked about? In fact, the ancestors are dead, they said, <laughs> those who said it. I mean, we, we are still wondering. They wondered, we wonder. And furthermore, there's been nothing that has changed since creation. And so skepticism is laced in their speech. The God has not intervened. One commentator writes, God has not intervened in human history, is their view. They, they see no empirical evidence, since there have been no changes, no divine intervention in the past, no judgment. One should expect conditions as they are in the future. That's, that's the angle in which they're coming from. And skepticism isn't foreign in Scripture. We saw it to the time of Noah, back in chapter 2, 2 Peter. We saw it from the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah that said, ah, oh, no. There's no way God's going to judge. We saw scoffers around the cross. Are you really the son of God? <laughs> you must be joking. In a recent research by Pew, December the 8th, 2022, all right, this is not that old. 
Four in ten Americans either do not believe Jesus will return or they don't believe in him at all. Four out of ten Americans. The further the study shows that only 14% of Christians, those who claim to be Christians, that's a broad umbrella, I understand, only 14% believe that the end of the world will culminate with the return of Christ. Wow. 14%. I used this analogy last week, but it it's just a good one, I think. <laughs> it's like, it, it's, it's viewing the IRS and saying, well, I really don't think they exist. Not, I'm not going to buy it simply a ruse for the government to get money. I'm not filing any taxes this 15th of April. I'm done. We're not doing that. Well, you can feel free to do that, but I assure you, the IRS will find you, especially now when they have more employees. <laughs> they will find you and they will punish you. I, that will come. Don't, don't miss it. And that's what Peter's warning here. He says, listen, the Lord, I mean, 2 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials, yep, and to reserve the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. These false teachers can be skeptical all they want, but reality is these events are going to occur, and, and Peter's going to come back to that. But notice what else he says hear about them, for they deliberately suppress the facts. Their skepticism really is laced with a sense of mockery and unbelief. And again, we said this, but they object on two grounds. One is that the fathers, and this is probably reference to Old Testament uh, patriarchs, they're dead. And then there's nothing that's changed since creation. I mean, the facts are the facts, they would argue. And this is where we, why we are where we are. Peter's going to give three arguments to why that type of thinking is wrong. And those are there in your notes. But the first of these, we see, well, see this in verses 5 through 7. But the first of these is creation itself represents divine intervention. Notice what he says. By the word of God, heavens existed, verse 5, long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by means of water. Formed out of water speaks of how the water was collected so that the ground could appear. The second phrase, by means of water, suggests that water served as an instrument by forming the world. And he's going somewhere with this because he's then going to talk about the world destroyed by water and what a contrast to what's going to happen in the third argument, and that's fire, which we'll get to in a minute. There's a deliberate rejection of God's creation that has occurred. Now, notice, they didn't deny that there's a creation. Did you catch that in the text? It's very clear. Uh, verse 4, it says, they continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they recognize that there's a creation. They just don't recognize that God created the, this world, this globe. And you think about why. Why would they deny that God created the world? Of course, we live in a day when many would say that. But, but why? Why? And I think there's two reasons. Number one, God as creator indicates that he is sovereign and that he is to be worshiped. Psalm 19 indicates that God's creation displays his character. Psalms 19, Psalm 19, 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Paul, when he was in Athens on Mars Hill, there in Acts 14, makes this statement to these pagans. They're not followers of Jesus. There's no Judeo-Christian worldview. 
It's a very pagan, very pluralistic society. He says, men, women, why are you doing these things? We too are human beings just like you. We're proclaiming the good news to you so that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea and everything that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go on their ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. And that's key. That's what Psalm 19 is declaring. Hey, you only need to look at creation. I think I mentioned this before. I taught with a lady who had a doctorate in genetics from Ohio State. She said, I became a follower of Jesus in my doctoral program, looking through a microscope. And I said, she said, there's no way there's not a God. This is way beyond us. You can't explain this. And yet, if you want to deny it, it allows you to not have to bend the knee and worship to a God, does it? He's no, you've removed him out of the equation. This has been the problem with the false teachers from day one. They're in rewriting truth. And now they're going to strip creation uh, of God being that great creator. And the second reason I think they're denying God as the creator is it understands that if God is creator, it implies accountability. <laughs> Not just worship, but accountability. Because Romans 1 states, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God, listen to the text, is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. There's no one without excuse. I don't care where you live on the globe. You can look to say, yeah, there's something beyond us that's sovereign. Recognizing that God is creator indicates several things. Indicates, number one, we're no longer the center of the universe. <laughs> You've met a few people like that? Yes, you want to sign them up for counseling or take a two-by-four to them. You're not the center of the universe. God is. We are no longer the determinant of truth, but God. We're no longer in control of our destiny, but God. We are no longer free to live by our own standards, but God. Wells makes this statement. He says, sin cannot dethrone God. Skepticism, you, you could fill in the blank. None of that's going to dethrone God. That is what his sin aims to do, but it misses the mark. Sin brings guilt to a man, but it does not bring him one ounce of sovereignty. God rules even when men imagine they are defying him. And these false teachers say, no, no, no. And Peter's saying, remember what I taught you. <laughs> what, what we read of from the prophets and from the apostles, God created the world, argument number one. He is involved in this creation. And secondly, we get to the second argument and that God has already judged the world once via water. <clears throat> they, they're saying, hey, God, God can't judge. Well, yes, he has, and he's done that. It's ironic in their refusal to accept that God would judge a world in the future. They've missed that he's already done it once before. Notice the text. It says in verse six, through these things, and I believe that's referring to the water as well as God's word. He says, through these things, the world existed and was destroyed by a deluge of water. It, this wasn't happenstance. This was God intentionally involved. In fact, chapter 2, verse 5, it said, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood on the ungodly world. In other words, it is a cosmic catastrophe. In fact, that's the term that's used here of God judging. 
Luke 17, Jesus gives this account. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so too will it be in the day of judgment when the Son of Man comes, Christ. When I return, he says, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, the flood came and destroyed them all. They thought they had it all together. And that's the problem with the false teachers saying, oh no, these things won't happen. You're crazy. That's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> that's nuts. No, 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 no. Then he comes. He's done water three times. Now he comes to fire. He says, by the same word, don't miss that. The word created, verse 5. The word spoke history into existence. It spoke and interrupted history, so to speak, when he brought the flood. And he will speak and bring an end to history. This word, it says, will present, and it says, the heavens and the earth have been reserved for fire. There's a time that is to come. Fire is seen throughout Scripture as a means of judgment. Zephaniah, excuse me, 118 says, Neither the silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord. I don't care how much reserves you have. <laughs> when God says it's time to judge, he will judge. And we see this throughout history, throughout Scripture being presented here. The future destruction of the world was inseparable in Peter's mind to judgment. It's interesting, later rabbinic writings in the second and third century AD talked about God judged with water, but look out, fire is going to be far worse than it's coming. <laughs> they made that connection. And a modern atomic science has revealed that the elements that make up the world are stored with power, but the world isn't going to be destroyed by man. It's going to be destroyed by God who hits the button. <laughs> At that right time, he will speak judgment. Now, I know you're sitting here going, wow, this is fire and brimstone. You know, can it be that God, who's so loving, do these things? Can he really judge the world such as this? Let me give you three very important points. First of all, God is righteous and he is just. Oh, yes, he's loving. But he's also righteous and he's just. He's a holy God. And, it, and he's so holy and righteous that he had to send his son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins, pay that price, and, by the way, and suffer because, and be separated because God is righteous. He is holy. And so he's righteous and he's just, and thus God always acts, acts in accordance with what is right. Deuteronomy 32, I love this text. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Again, if you question that, look to Calgotha. Look to the cross. And third, the Lord is the final standard of what is right. You say, well, I don't like this. That's what the false teachers are saying. And what does Paul say in Romans 9? Who are you? Oh, man or woman, to answer back to God. <laughs> Will what is modeled say to its modeler, why have you made me like this? Or the potter, no right over the clay? I mean, can you imagine a lump of clay on a will saying, hey, I don't like this. Give me a little bit larger lip here and let's, let's deal with this. That's the problem with the false teachers. They want to jump off the potter's wheel. Say, well, no, we got this. Thank you very much. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says, if we, 
if he were a God of perfect righteousness without power to carry out that righteousness, he would be worthy of worship. You got to have both. He would have no guarantee that justice will ultimately prevail in the universe. I mean, if he's righteous, but he has no power, really, we're a sad state of affairs. There's no way to ensure this. There's no way God can take care of this. Then now let's flip it the other way. Let's say he's all powerful, but he's unrighteous. Now we have a dictator. We're in a scary position. This is what Wayne Grudem's talking about. We need to rejoice that God is faithful without iniquity. He's just and he's upright. And he knows the path he has. Now I love this. We're going to get to this next week. And and. Peter, you just know he, he understands. We as readers, this is where we're headed. It's like, wait a minute, this seems so harsh. But notice what Peter says. I'm gonna show you some things from next week. All right, verse eight. Now, dear friends, do not let this one thing escape your notice that a single day is like a thousand years. God is gracious. <laughs> He's loving. And all of this has been orchestrated, but God is still giving a chance for men and women to repent just as he did in the time of Noah. That ark just didn't appear. Noah was working on it for some time. Abraham pleaded for the safety of, uh, for the not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And he got down to 10 righteous and there weren't even 10. God had given them an opportunity. And there's a day coming. And the, despite what the false teachers are saying, hey, God has created this world. He's judged it once and he will judge it again. You can't get around it. This is the text. This is what we see. So let me give you three principles then as we walk away from this that are there in your notes as you look at this. The larger evolutionary worldview, I'm talking about a macro evolution, not micro, fails to account for God and his involvement in this world. As I look at what I see here in 2 Peter 3, it's a reminder, no, God is involved in this universe Psalm 33 says, By the Lord's decrees the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth. Catch that. Once again, we have word. It's not a, there's no coincidence, is there? In the beginning, God created the world. He did it by speaking it into existence. And in John 1, 1, when we meet the Lord, he's, he's described as the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with us. It says, he piles up the waters of the sea. He puts the oceans in storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all who live in the world stand in awe of him. You have your young people studying at various schools and you have kids coming home saying, well, we evolved from a chimpanzee or we, we, we crawled out from a mud puddle. Of course, the first question you ask is, well, who created the mud puddle? Where'd the chimpanzee come from? There are three things to remember when we talk about a Christian worldview, Judeo-Christian worldview that understands there's a God who created all of this. One, we're talking about a living being that is God because non-life cannot produce life. Secondly, we're talking about a powerful being because of the very nature of what was formed. And third, and don't miss it, we're talking about an intelligent being. Because of the order, arrangement of the cosmos. This is my, why my friend who is a, a ge genetic specialist 
can say, this order, there's no, this didn't just happen. Bushwell, theologian, he says, the fact that no two snowflakes are alike is much less evidential of God's purpose and design for the world than is the important place snow occupies in the cycle of seasons and provisions of moisture for the earth. I'm not a big fan of snow. I saw it this morning, but it is a reminder. We've got a great God who's extremely creative. No wonder the old hymn, after rehearsing God is beautiful, his God's beautiful creation in verse 2, he breaks out, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. So here we stand, and we look at what we see here in Second Peter, and it's a reminder that we've got a creator who has placed all this before us. Secondly, our theology must be determined by scripture, not by personal preferences, experience, or feelings. Think about the false teachers. They failed to recall the truths of God. As we saw here, they allowed their own desires to govern their actions. They rewrote their theology based upon their morals, as we see here, and they failed to worship the God of the universe. Hebrews 11 gives that hall of faith, all these great names, and it gets to Noah, and listen to what the writer states. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about these things not yet seen with reverence regarded following the Lord in obedience, he constructed an ark and through faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Did you catch that? He didn't, he didn't have any idea. What? A, a boat? Never rained. Abraham. He says he went out from Ur. That, that city had running water in its day. It was so sophisticated. If you want to see the treasures of Ur, go to the art museum in Cincinnati or to the Louvre in Paris, and you'll see the beauty of all of this. And he, he's, he's told to leave, but God doesn't tell him where to go. Abraham just obeys. And, and the danger of the false teachers is they're saying, hey, your theology should be based upon what you feel. Well, this is right to me. Who said you were the universe? <laughs> Did you place the stars? Did you form the mountains? No, God did. And God has the right to say, this is how we are to live. You may be sitting here this morning saying, I, I don't know these stories of old. I've heard the name Noah in the past. And, and I, I've heard about Jesus. In fact, I believe he existed. I think he's a great guy, but you really don't know him. This Jesus is the God who came to earth not to start a new religion, but to fulfill what was all the way back in Genesis, what the prophets spoke of that would occur. He was the one who came to be the savior of the world, to take all the crud that's in this world and deal with it, our crud. All the insecurities, all the failures. He said, I'm gonna take that, I'm gonna pay the price for those sins on the cross. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish be judged ultimately but have everlasting life. Jesus came just as was prophesied. Micah said a little town called Bethlehem. And as we see here in 2 Peter Christ is going to come again, but this time it's to judge and serve as king.
As sure as he created the world, as sure as he destroyed the world with water, he will come again. And so, this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus? <laughs> Remember, ignorance or contentment or un in unbelief or denying that another day will occur will not justify your non-response with the IRS. They'll get you. <laughs> Trust me, they'll get you. But how far worse is the Lord of the universe who says, whoever calls upon the name of me, my son will be saved. <laughs> Come to me, you who are weary. Let me have a relationship with you. That's why we as believers can rejoice even in the darkest of times because we know our God reigns. He's created this world. He's put it in motion. He's intimately involved and he will see us through to the end. Finally, in your notes, it said, the impending judgment is another reminder that we cannot compromise truth for cultural acceptance, unity, or personal desires. You can dismiss it, you can ridicule it, you can ignore it, you can even rewrite it, but ultimately you will embrace, either I embrace it, or and bask in the goodness of God, or you'll reject it and you will fall under his judgment. Cling fast, O church. Recall the things that the Lord has given through the prophets and through the apostles. As the writer of Proverbs states, my children, if you receive my words and store up my commands, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand how to fear the Lord and you will discover knowledge about the Lord. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. That's the beauty of this. And so we as a church need to know it. We need to understand it. And we must not forget it. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are in it. We don't have to wonder why do we exist? <laughs> Even why is there evil? Will things be made right? All of those questions are answered for us. And Peter does that really in these short seven verses found in chapter three of Second Peter. Because he's reminding us, no, you, O oh Lord, are the sovereign one who's created the world. It just didn't happen. We've got a God who's intimately involved. Secondly, you know how to deal with sin because you're righteous and just. You did it in the past. And third, we know that there will be a day when you will vindicate your people. Father, we are called to rest in you, to be faithful, the task that you've given. Help us to do so. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who does not know you, this is all foreign to them. Father, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins and that you rose, he rose from the dead and that we can have a relationship with you through forgiveness of those sins and declaring you our Lord and that we have a future and understanding of what lies beyond the grave. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.